0: Hello and welcome back to episode two of the Coffee Trading Academy podcast. This episode was recorded on October 7th with the famous soft commodity researcher, Steve Wateridge of Tropical Research Services. Now I do Steve's intro in the interview itself, so I won't rehash that here, but we cover a lot of ground, from how Steve got into the business and what it takes to be a crop forecasting guru, to some key origins like, of course, Brazil, Vietnam, and Colombia, and we even touch on some controversial topics like the role of hedge funds, the trade, and market manipulation. So this is a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, Steve Wateridge of Tropical Research. Uh, so first of all, thanks very much for agreeing to do this. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to get a chance to chat with you again. Uh, I haven't seen you, I think, since one of the uh, coffee dinners in Europe a few years ago now because uh, it's been a while since that's happened. It's funny um, you know when we were at that dinner um, you know you have the black tie event and then there was the cocktail parties and stuff beforehand where I remember we chatted a little bit and it stuck in my mind because I was wearing a tie. And at that time, I thought, uh, you know, my boss, uh, my previous bosses, Ali Kinsey, who you know, and some other people, have said, you know, Ryan, when you go to Europe, you got to dress sharp. It's not like the U.S., <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, but they've you you've followed suit. No one wears ties anymore. Uh, that was no. a, yeah. That was what uh, I
1: haven't done you know working from home for the last ten years. Uh, there's no need.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so just to introduce you. Um, I've known Steve for uh, a long time in my career, but uh, a shorter time in your career. Uh, Steve Wateridge is widely recognized as a leading world expert in tropical commodity products. He became a partner in Tropical Research Services in 2010, which is when I met you. Uh, Prior to joining Tropical Research Services, he was the senior coffee and cocoa analyst at Osprey Services Group, which he joined in 2006. Prior to that, Mr. Wateridge was employed at EDF Mann, uh, our shared alma mater here, as the head of coffee and cocoa research and the head of cocoa research before that. Prior to EDF Mann, Mr. Wateridge served as an economist at Roundtree's PLC. And you were also appointed chairman of the Cocoa Promotion Committee of the ICCO in 2004 and has been a member of the ICCO Expert Working Group of Stocks since 1994. Mr. Wateridge also earned a, a master's in economics from the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, as well as a BA in economics and politics uh, from the same school. So you have both of the dismal sciences covered there. With Correct. The, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm also a political science uh, and uh, an economics major, and um, I. I People ask me why I didn't get into it. And I said, well, I I learned enough to know that I don't want to be involved in politics. So So here we are. Uh, But thank you again uh, for for joining. So before we, um, normally I ask my guests to kind of walk me through their path, but maybe we should start the other way. Maybe we start with you telling me a little bit about what you're doing now, uh, what your role is in the company that you are uh, a, a partner in.
1: Yeah, you know, Tropical Research Services was set up ten years ago, basically to support the clients that we had at the time uh, in in the hedge fund community in the East Coast. We also uh, started taking on other clients in trade, industry, and at origin, and uh, you know we've expanded from just you know cocoa and coffee into sugar. Uh, sorry. That Sean's not going to be happy about that. You'll have to edit that bit out because we were already in sugar, but uh, (laughs) I I got involved in it. So, Uh, yeah. So, so now we basically supply uh, research services to uh, any client who's interested in the soft commodities. And uh, we focus very much on certainly for the tropical tree crops, cocoa and coffee, we focus very much on field research. We have field teams based in uh, Brazil for coffee and sugar, in Colombia for coffee, Vietnam for coffee, Indonesia for coffee and cocoa, and West Africa, Ivory Coast, and Ghana. Mm. Uh, You know, the one thing I found about the, uh, you know, cocoa and coffee relative to other commodities. Uh, there isn't a lot of reliable data on uh, agronomy, unlike grains, for instance, where you've got USDA right. who are absolutely top-notch, put in a lot of effort. You've got private consultancy and various services uh, who, who who analyze the grains markets to the nth degree. In cocoa and coffee, you tend to have to go out and uh, you know find out the numbers for yourself. A lot of large trade houses and industry who have clearly a, a vested interest in in uh, that sort of information do the work uh, which they keep in house mainly because Uh, that's why they do it. They're trying to give themselves a competitive edge. And the one thing I learned at EGNF man, you know, we would tell our clients what we wanted them to hear when we wanted them to hear it. We, Mm -hmm. we weren't in the business of, of, you know, telling everybody at the same time, what we were seeing on the ground. We wanted to digest that information first, take positions. And then, yeah, if we had uh, clients who we were developing relationships relationship with or had long standing relationships with, then we would keep them informed, but it was always on our terms. And that's pretty much the difference. Uh, You know, when I worked for Osprey, it was very much in-house proprietary information uh, that they were using uh, along with uh, the other hedge funds that we were supporting at the time. But now, you know, our client base uh, receive all the information at the same time and it's for them to decide what they want to do with it, whether it, uh, uh, it needs any action, whether it confirms what they, uh, knew already, right. whether it's new news and, and, uh, they have to, you know, question, you know, the, the, the trading strategies that they're following.
0: Um, yeah, it's interesting actually just, um, on, on sugar real quick. Uh, just when I mentioned to a friend of mine, a trader that we were going to have this, in this interview, uh, and he actually said, oh, uh. I used to use them for sugar, so or that uh, they were good in sugar. So that is uh, definitely one of your your strengths as, as well. Uh, but it's interesting, yeah. That's one of the things I talk about in my courses. Um, how in grains and cotton, uh, you know, they've got the USDA because it's a US centric con- US centric contract, right? And they have that um, number that comes out every month, and the prices literally just readjust to that the second it comes out. Uh, and in coffee and cocoa, we don't we don't really have that, right? Um, so it's the way I phrase it is it's kind of a poker game, right? With all of the trade houses have their, their cards and they they're bluffing or not bluffing, I guess, uh, depending on how they, how it suits them. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and as I say, you know, the other people who clearly have a, a big interest are, uh, you know, end users and producers of which there are far more, but, uh, they tend to be more, uh, you know. That, that less concentrated than, than the industry and the trade, which, uh, potentially puts them at a disadvantage individually.
0: I'm, uh, I'm going to ask you something a little bit controversial. We can edit it out if it gets too controversial here, but, uh, it's speaking, hearing about this, you know, it just reminds me of, you know, I hear something a lot, especially in the, the Twitter sphere, uh, which I think thankfully you're not a part of, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, is that the, people are always saying, "Oh, the trade houses are manipulating it, or the the funds are manipulating it." I always hear like a lot of mal intent from people um, on the markets, and maybe I'm a, a bit naive, but I I kind of felt like, yeah, the trade houses are like, you know, they they hold the cards close to their chest. They let it, people know when they want to, but I don't really see a lot of big conspiracy to move the market one way or the other. But I don't know. What do you think? Is that am I naive on that?
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I think you know, they can get a competitive advantage short term. but you know in the long term, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. If, if you can pick up early on with a crop problem or whatever and you can trade the differentials uh, or the flat price because of that, yeah, you can gain a competitive advantage. But ultimately, uh, you know, everyone will know the size of the crops at the end of the day. You know, the the the, right. the 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 coffee comes out, the cocoa comes out. I think hedge funds is an interesting one because I've often spoken at conferences and actually praised hedge funds for the market stabilization that they introduce. And I use cocoa as an example. The record high prices in cocoa, in nominal terms. We're in 1977, when Mm -hmm. I think New York was above $5,000 a tonne. That was a time we actually ran out of cocoa. I sat next to a guy at Roundtree's who was working at that time in in the late 70s, and he was trying to buy cocoa for, he was working for Cadbury at the time, he was trying to buy cocoa, and there was not a bean to be had. No matter what he wanted to pay, he could not, they basically had to stop producing chocolate. And That's at $5,000, <laughs> $5, demand got absolutely destroyed anyway, so they didn't need the cocoa in the end. But one of the reasons prices went to that level uh, at that point is because there was no speculative activity. Hedge funds really only came into being in the 1980s, right. seriously speaking. And and so, you know, the the, the signal that we run out of cocoa didn't come until there was nothing left in the warehouses. And that had huge consequences for future years because obviously it destroyed demand. It led to a huge expansion in production. Prices collapsed. What we've, and and you know, uh, what you've seen over the last 10 years is a number of situations where people have been saying, oh, we're going to run out of cocoa. We're going to run out of cocoa. You know, I've been to conferences in 2014, 2015, where the main theme has been, how do we get more cocoa? And, it's, and, and hedge funds latched onto that, pushed the price up, giving the farmers enough time to respond. You know, you can't, it's not like grains where you can plant more and produce it the following year. If you're going to plant more cocoa, it takes three to five years before it reaches full maturity. You can, right. you know, if you've got higher prices, you can add more fertilizer, you can spray, you can improve yields, all of which helps. So I would argue that by giving farmers a, an early signal as to what the long term fundamentals are, and it works both ways, because sometimes it, it, it's a high price to, to encourage them. Sometimes it's a low price to disincentivize them. Uh, right. But that prevents the big surpluses and the big deficits, and, and it actually, in the long term, stabilizes price. And if you look even in nominal terms, you know, obviously in real terms, $5,000 in today's prices is 12000 15000 depending on which deflator you use. Right. Uh, we've never got anywhere close to that uh, because of speculative involvement to a large degree.
0: Oh, it's interesting i i i 100 agree uh, maybe as, as a former hedgy but uh um but i think that it's true i mean it, one of the things that i look at is the cot um and you know one of the things i, I talk to my students about is how you know for every buyer has to be a seller so if there is no you know if the trade needs essentially uh and the trade is a proxy for the farmer to some degree uh they need someone else on the other side of that to take that position otherwise to your point the prices can kind of go nuts um it's but uh, that's
1: particularly the case in cocoa and coffee because of the long lead time between planting and producing.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's uh it's interesting. I, there's a lot of corollaries and, and sort of similarities between coffee and cocoa. Um, one of the reasons I told, you know, I, a, a phrase we probably hear a lot is that coffee's the second most traded commodity in the world. It's not, but we, it's a, it's kind of a, a, a myth we all like to repeat. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it's so popular is that, um, you have a very inelastic supply and a very inelastic demand right um there's no replacement for coffee really um i'd say the same is true for cocoa i i would think too right you can't just have a you know a fake cocoa bar really or i mean a chocolate bar right I guess there's there's probably some synthetic things but not really you certainly can't call it chocolate right
1: no i um, think the the alternatives to a chocolate bar are other snack bars and you know, if, right. if chocolate becomes too expensive, then people switch to other types of snack food.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you could say the same for coffee, I guess, but, um, I, but at least in the sense of caffeine, uh, there, there isn't a, an alternative, right. Uh, but, but those two things together uh, make for a very uh, volatile price. Yep. Um, and I did want to, I did want to come, uh, get, get to coffee in a minute, but, uh, I, you've raised a lot of interesting things to do with cocoa. Um, and I think we have a mutual friend and uh, his, one of his favorite phrases is Ryan, the fundamentals don't matter. Uh, and he's a cocoa trader. And I think this is born out of a, a frustration from trading the the market. Um, but it seems like maybe in cocoa, uh, would you say that it's because it's a smaller market, it's easier to to manipulate? Or maybe I mean it seems more like the manipulation uh, is see, if there's any manipulation is more from the trade in that aspect because they have a stronger hand to play in, in cocoa than than say a hedge fund. Um, yeah, but I don't know. You know is there, any of that? There, there are
1: instances where uh, you know prices have been moved out of kilter with what I would call fair value, uh, but ultimately uh, you know in the long term the fundamentals uh, come through you know, if you if if prices are set too high then you create surpluses and and if prices are too low you create deficits and anything you know it that transition can often lead to trading opportunities uh, yeah. which allow people to uh, to make and you know potentially to lose significant amounts if they get it right or if they get it wrong
0: right um okay so let's um let we'll, me let's try to go back to my uh my plan here since we just got caught, caught on, on on good conversation instead. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about because one of the one of my goals in having this podcast and 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 these things is to to help people who are starting in the industry, um, and kind of and maybe people who are you know in their career have ways of, of developing their career. So, what would you say, uh, you know, in 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 your trading career, in your research career, um, you've probably Trained dozens of analysts. Uh, you certainly managed a lot uh, of people. Um, you've seen people come and go. What does it take to be a good analyst? Uh, what are the qualities that are that are, that you look for or that you see are successful? Um, and how do you go about with the human aspect of, of of that?
1: I think you have to follow the data. You have to be absolutely committed. You you have to enjoy crunching numbers. You know because the numbers are, are like pieces of a jigsaw uh, and you know some of the pieces are actually from the wrong jigsaw but the more you can put them together the clearer the picture becomes and it is absolutely crucial to uh you know to to, to follow the data you, you, you know you can't afford to be influenced by opinion you know some of the uh traders i've worked with have been forceful shall we say and you know, if they think they're right, it can sometimes be difficult to budge them, but you're not there as a yes man. That will that ultimately will always end in disaster. Right. Uh, you know, you've got to give an objective opinion. And as I say, uh, you know, you've got to be prepared to change your mind as the facts change.
0: It sounds like you've almost implied a, um, something there as well, in addition to kind of, it sounds like what I'm hearing is, one is sort of an integrity and a commitment to the data, right? Um, and, and something else you sort of implied that I think is also interesting is almost sort of courage, right? Because you have to be able to, it's one of the things I noticed in, um, in commodities is that people get very emotional, right? Uh, they get very attached to their, their, their views, bullish or bearish, and, and with good reason, right? I mean, a lot of them's livelihoods are tied up into that view. Um, so they might feel threatened, for example, if they're very bullish and you say no, that the data is bearish, right? Uh, so it sounds like those are sort of the two of the two of the qualities that you think are, have been important.
1: Yeah, I, I think you've got to have conviction uh, if you've done the analysis and the data supports it, but you also have to be able to say, well, actually, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, to give you an example, at the moment we spent we spent a lot of time studying what's going on in brazil doing our field work and i feel very confident in the conclusions we're drawing from uh, our field results the fact that we're actually carrying out two types of surveys that are independent of each other right. and they're both showing similar results that gives me even more conviction but if you were to ask me what's going to happen with consumption post covid over the next 12 months the short answer is well actually i don't know you know to Look at a forward balance sheet to try to determine whether we're in surplus, whether we're in deficit, has price performed its function with the recent rally Mm -hmm. in terms of basically preventing uh, a a, a weather-related or a structural deficit. Uh, A lot depends on your assumptions on consumption. And all I can say is, you know, I can tell you what my assumptions are. They may be right. They may be wrong. I have very little conviction. Mm -hmm. Uh, All I can do is as data becomes available, analyze that data with an open mind and it will either support my assumptions or it won't. And if it doesn't, then I have to change my assumptions.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, it's sort of, again, that sort of that commitment to the data um, and uh, I guess having integrity to it. Um, one of the things that, that you brought up that I, that I wanted to, uh, to follow up on was, uh, well, one was the, the methodology. Um, and then the other was now is blanking <laughs> me, uh, but, oh yes. So you are a fundamentals guy, right? And that comes down to you, I think your, your methodology and, and how you look at the, you know, the realities on the ground, so to speak. Uh, and I want to come to that in a second, but to what degree do you now in your current role and in general, do you say, these are the fundamentals, therefore I think price is going to do this. Um, or is it more like you decide what the price is going to do? This is what the fundamentals say, because um, there is some back and forth, right? I mean, because the fundamentals, I mean, the the price drives production to some degree, right, and consumption. So.
1: Yeah, I, I think we're we constantly trying to work out whether the markets are structurally in surplus or deficit or balanced. You know, and if the the markets balanced and 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 prices aren't moving. That tells you something, right? And we're we're basically looking for turning points. Is it a weather event that changes that? Is it a surge in demand that might change that? Uh, And and, you know, if that's the case, what is then the function of price? We're constantly asking, what is the function of price? And and uh, and and that tends to lead you along the, the the route of where prices need to go to uh, create a more stable environment. For instance, earlier in the year when prices were 125 cents a pound, we felt that there was huge underinvestment in supply. The only reason that we hadn't seen significant stock draws pointing towards structural deficit was because of COVID, which had hit consumption for two consecutive years. Consumption growth has been pretty much flat for two years, because of the changes brought about by lockdowns and shifts in consumption patterns, and so on, uh, without that, prices would have had to have gone a lot higher a lot sooner. Uh, now prices have moved up from you know one of the points I made with the, the the Brazil frost, the, the move from one hundred and fifty to two hundred. It probably for the forward balance sheet gave us more production from farmers who are now getting a much better price than they were a year ago than we lost to the brazil frost mm-hmm. uh, but we needed that coffee there's no question about that which is you know basically why prices are still there uh you know whether we need to go higher to 250 or 300 or whatever i, I actually don't think you get much more incremental production uh from 200 to 250 you know, the, the, the big increase is you know, 125 to 200. That's when farmers feel a lot better off and are able to invest more and, and so on. Uh, you know, do we need to disrupt demand? Uh, and to me, that depends on, okay, how severe are the weather issues that we're seeing at the moment? Will they resolve themselves? If they do, then, you know, prices at 200 cents a pound for a sustained period of time will do the job. It has done in the past you know, the, the spikes tend to be when uh, we can't turn on supply quickly enough, and and we have to destruct demand.
0: Right. Um, and this is actually, you know, I watched your seminar, um, uh, the ice one, which I, I, I liked a lot. Um, and I actually, and I thought those were some really interesting points. And and I think those were, you know, I think kind of unique in the, in the market, I think maybe since you've Pointed them out. People, uh, some people have adopted that, um, but I, I think you were the first one to really come out and say it uh, that that prices might solve uh, some of the the supply issues uh, from 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 the drought and the frost. One of my
1: actually one extra point I will make. Yeah, please. It's not just the forward balance sheet either. One of the surprising things I've noticed since the price spike in July, we've actually added over a million bags to production in nineteen twenty. Now, uh, mm. Sorry, 2021, the, uh, right, the uh, coffee year. Mm-hmm. And, and, and basically what has happened, very good prices has dragged out all the hidden stocks that were there that we didn't realize was there. You know, mm. We've had to increase our production numbers in India, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, Ethiopia, Uganda, ever since that price spike. Right. So basically the higher prices have dragged out what was there, but that means because we've got an extra million, a million and a half bags that we didn't realize uh, we have to add that into the forward balance sheet as well, because, mm. you know, that implies that production was slightly higher, you know, a, a, a million bags on a hundred and, you know, sixty, hundred and seventy million bag crop. Isn't a huge amount, but, uh, when you add it into next year at the year after, it actually makes a, a meaningful impact. So, you know, price is already helping in that respect. It, it, even before we have the benefit from allowing farmers to apply more fertiliser, as they're doing in Vietnam mm-hmm. now compared to what they were six months ago, uh, taking better care of their, uh, of, of their farms and, and, you know, and even before they start planting more coffee.
0: And are you seeing those numbers come out in exports? Is that what, what's uh, changing your view on on that, or or, or surveys? Or... Yeah, it's
1: ba- no, it's basically export figure. We, mm-hmm. we carry out surveys in the four largest producing countries: Brazil, Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, and we think we got reasonable information on on stocks in those countries. What we don't know is you know what's going on in Honduras, Guatemala, India, Ethiopia, right. Uganda, other than monitoring the exports and uh, you know clearly more coffee has come out of those countries and, and it's all focused very much since the price spike and you know mm-hmm. if it if, if it walks like a duck it looks like a duck and it goes quack it probably is a duck so yeah uh, and, and it just shows that production was probably a little better than we were we were believing six months ago
0: that makes a lot of sense um, and that actually that's a good uh, um that raises a question that i had at the at the ice seminar um which is one of the countries that you mentioned uh you mentioned uh, uh vietnam uh in- increasing fertilizer and you know and and uh, planting and whatever uh in reaction to the prices but to what degree vietnam obviously is a is a robusta heavy country for what degree is that SD going to be divorced from the um you know from the arabica smd because even if if arabica prices are at 200 cents uh you know it's not like with all of the the blends that we have now that are 100 arabica 100 percent colombia whatever um it's not it doesn't seem easy to just switch um into into robusta into that in that sense it,
1: absolutely it's not but at the margin it will happen you know the biggest flexibility i would suggest is in brazil where mm. uh you know there's a low-grade Arabicas and Conilons can be substituted quite easily. And I think yeah. we will max out on Conilon usage. I think it's interesting that August, I think we had the lowest Conilon exports for about 20 months and we've got a good Conilon crop. So, you know, and it's not logistic issues. It's not right. the container shortages. It's basically all the Conilons are needed in the internal market. And that so there is a shift going on in Brazil, And ultimately, it will lead to marginal changes in consumption. Colombia, another case, they're importing Conilons from Brazil. They're importing Robusta, which Mm. allows them to export more Arabica. There's a shift in internal consumption from Arabica to Robusta. There will be a lot of markets where that won't happen. You know, I, I, I know some roasters who constantly say how difficult it is to actually, you know, change blends. Uh, I remember when I worked in the industry years ago at, at Roundtree's, you know, t- to actually get the scientists, the white coats to actually change anything was nigh on impossible right. until it became so compelling uh, from a commercial point of view that the accountant stepped in and said, you've got to do it. Or you, at least you've got to try and at that point, you know, the case at Roundtree's was when uh, they were using almost exclusively Nigerian beans. Nigerian mm. production was going down, Ivory Coast going up. The scientists said, rubbish quality, you can't use it. Uh, in the end, the blend started changing. And then, of course, you look at the customer service manager to see if anyone's complaining, because it's all very well. The aficionados on the tasting panel saying, you no, this is not the Kit Kat chocolate that we are used to and that we, you know, pride ourselves on, uh, it's actually the consumer who decides. And if you can slip in 10% Ivory Coast and get rid of 10% Nigerian and no one notices the difference and there's a big price uh, advantage in doing it, then you slip in another 10% and see if the consumer notices and, 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 and so on. And I'm sure if you could, you know, Go back and formulate a Kit Kat bar from 1984 and compare it with a Kit Kat bar from 1988. The two would have been hugely different. Even mm. the general public would notice the difference. But it took four years for that change to evolve. And over that time frame, with marginal changes in in, in taste, particularly in a product like Kit Kat, which is basically chocolate surrounding a, a wafer, uh, you know. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, there, 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 there is a lot of scope for, for marginal changes that when they're all added together can have quite a significant impact on consumption patterns.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, uh, one on the marginal changes, right, maybe even if 80 percent of the market is fixed in their blends, if, if that 20 percent can shift from one to the other relatively easily. Um, in a lower cost blend, you know, your cafe bustello or whatever, uh, not, not a knock on them, but <laughs> then, uh, then that can, can make a, a big difference in your global supply and demand. Uh, and then to your point, if, uh, if prices increase enough, then even the Starbucks of the world will say, okay, well, look, we, there's some areas here where the, the consumer doesn't want to pay $10 for a cup of coffee. So we have to figure out some kind of blend that's going to work. So,
1: and also there will be some marginal consumers who buy strictly on price. And if they see, you know, they may like their Arabica, uh, coffee, but if they say, see that the price is gone up by 30, 40, 50% and robusted coffee has stayed the same, they'll be tempted to switch.
0: So let's, um, let's segue into Brazil, but before we get into Brazil, um, uh, one of the things that struck me was, you know, when we first met, uh, I was a, a young analyst at uh, at a, at that at a, a hedge fund, and um, after working in the trade for a while, and I remember I think you and, and Sean came in and you you told us all about your methodology and how you you do the work, which uh, I was very eye opening to me at the time, um, and I think it was very different from, you know, it's it's easy to be kind of a Sort of a pundit i call myself uh from from afar and say oh this is what i think is happening based on on the data uh that i see and it's available but uh, it's a very different thing to kind of have that firsthand data and be in charge of putting it all together and coming up with a methodology and you know training teams and whatever to, to pursue that so can you give us a, a little overview of what what the process is for the four countries that you that you work in, and um, is there is there a difference between them, or is it consistent across, or uh, how is that done?
1: It, it's consistent in that we have we have two types of surveys. Uh, we don't carry out both surveys in Indonesia and Colombia, uh, but we do in Vietnam and Brazil. Our two surveys are uh, uh, what we call the macro survey, which is similar to the trade house methodology, where you send people into the field. After the cherries have set, uh, they visit thousands of farms at random. You know, our survey in Brazil will take four weeks. We will probably visit, you know, a couple of thousand farms. We will collect data on the number of, you know, the, the cherry yield on those farms. We also collect data on the tree density, because obviously, if the trees are more tightly packed, then that's going to give you higher right. production uh, I know others rather than measuring the trees they, they just focus on the uh, on on the cherry load and use government data for mm. uh, tree density we found certainly in Brazil that the government data is unreliable so we prefer to do that ourselves right. it takes us longer but we think it gives us a more reliable uh, estimate at the at the end of the day uh, so that's our main method that we do, we, we, we you know, in the current environment for instance, this is something we will do in November-December. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will be our first survey of the year when we will see how many cherries are, are, are on the trees. We will go back in January-February, we will go back again in May uh, and, and uh, do the same measurements to see how cherries have survived. Uh, in addition, we carry out more regular micro-surveys These are on 50 or 60 selected farms, the same farms. Not only it's the same farms, we visit the same trees on the same farms and count the same branches on the same trees on the same farms. This is something we developed years ago at EDF Mann, where we took some of our cocoa methodology and tried to apply it to coffee. Mm -hmm. Uh, We found the method wasn't as reliable. We would never... uh, uh, we 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 would never use it in isolation. We still believe right. that the macro survey gives a much more reliable estimate for the country as a whole. But we think because it's uh, because you're you're only visiting sixty farms rather than you know six hundred or many more, uh, you can do it more regularly. And mm. so we go round in September, October, December in uh, Brazil doing our uh, micro surveys uh, the interesting one is always December because then we've got two surveys that give us results right. and if the results match then it gives a, a lot of conviction because they're carried out completely independently of each other mm. and the conclusions are derived independently of each other if those two surveys uh, match then you know, we're, we're, we're very confident of, of, of our conclusions. If they differ, which sometimes they do, sometimes the micro will point to better or worse production, then that, that leads us to, to tend to, uh, uh, to, to weight our conclusions from the macro survey in one direction or another. It won't override the conclusions of the macro survey, but we will accept that if our micro survey in south of Minas is pointing to a bigger crop than the macro survey, we will basically tell our clients that the risk to this crop is very much the upside, and we will Hmm. try to quantify that risk and and give them them the range. Uh, And also, because we're doing this in September and October, we're picking up. Information on flowering, defoliation, soil moisture, farmer inputs, how much fertilizer is being used, how the farmers are reacting to, to, to weather, how much pruning is going on. So we don't have to wait until our major survey in November, December and, 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 and basically have nothing to, to, to report. Right. You know, it, it gets us into the field. And the more you're in the field, the more useful information you're picking up.
0: Yeah, that's, um, this might be getting too into the weeds. Uh, but I, you know, I'm a coffee nerd, so I, I, I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, this might be getting too into the weeds on your methodology here, but, um, would you say that, uh, the reason why the micro survey is less effective in coffee than in cocoa is because the tree has a shorter lifespan. Is that an issue? And when you're looking at the same crop year over year, certainly some of those trees are dying or, uh, uh, you know getting old or something so do they is it kind of like they they replant a new tree in the same spot or
1: they they're certainly more churning in coffee in terms of pruning uh relative to 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 cocoa uh you know new areas coming into production alternatives uh to you know in, in somewhere like vietnam for instance we've seen uh in the last 10 years uh that glack has gone from being a monoculture where everyone was growing coffee and only coffee to now it, it, it uh, they, they've got multiple crops. There's hmm. peppers taken off. Uh, people are growing durian, avocados, and so on. So it's much more a, a, a multi-cropping environment rather than a monocrop. And right. we, while we will pick that up in our micro survey, that that's the sort of thing we would expect to see more. In our macro surveys, and, and, and build that into the, uh, if you like, into the into the calculation, into the model.
0: Okay, so let's, um, you know, time's flying. We only have twenty minutes left or so. So uh, I wanted to get to the two, to at least these two big things, which is, uh, if you could give us, I think we've kind of beaten the the frost to death, um, and even now uh, the the drought is something we've been talking about for a while now. What is really, I guess still up in the air and kind of more new and, and interesting to me at least is what was the extent of the drought and now that we have the rain um what does that mean because you know i'd like to say oh it's great it's bearish because now we have rain caught tree can recover etc but looking at it this morning and you're seeing two to three hundred percent of normal rain in some areas um and and my understanding at least is that the plant tends to like normal climatology like you know yeah
1: yeah so. uh- I don't think we'll know until December at the earliest. So, uh, you know, even though the forecasts are for very heavy rains over the next month, that may or may not materialize. We don't know. And, and, uh, you know, I think the one thing, if you look at last year, for instance, uh, The drought was actually, you know, it started off with a very delayed start to the rains in September, October and the first half of November. That cost us, we reckon, about seven million bags of crop potential for the 21-22 crop. Uh, The rains in December and January were very good. Uh, It is the rainy season. It does what it says on the label. But those rains finished early in February, March, April. And that affected right. the outturn yields. That's pretty crucial for the bean filling stage. So that affected, that had a further impact on 21-22. But in addition, the 22-23 crop cycle starts in last September. That's when the branches start growing between September right. and May. Now it was an on-cycle crop. If we'd have had normal weather, we would have had big branches and plenty of potential. That potential was stunted By the lack of rain, first of all, the late start to the rain and the early end to the rain. Because trees were actually focusing on protecting the cherries rather than the branches. Uh, So we know that over the last 12 months, the weather has had an adverse effect on 21-22 and 22-23 potential. And we've tried to quantify that. I think the interesting thing is what happens now regarding 22-23. We always Hmm. felt with the underlying soil moisture deficit that if uh, the rains didn't return in what was a normal fashion in the middle of September, we would have further problems with 22-23. And normally we don't think the rains need to return until the middle of October. You know, in a normal year with normal underlying soil moisture, we wouldn't have been overly concerned. This year is different. We've got that, you know, long term underlying soil moisture deficit. The rains didn't return in the middle of September. We did a micro survey uh, in the second half of the month and we saw higher than normal levels of defoliation. We saw, you know, low soil moisture in the farms. We believe that 22-23 has been further impacted. But it's relatively small. If we saw similar conditions this year to last year, where we had below average rains in October and the first half of November, then I think we really would have serious, serious problems with 22, 23, and also potentially with 23, 24 branch growth. So uh, you know that, that would have been the worst case scenario. That right. seems to have been avoided. You know, the rains, you know, we've had good rains in the past week. I think we've had 50, 60 millimetres. There will be a big flowering. Uh, If the follow up rains uh, carry on through October, then that flowering should survive. The cherries should set. I'm not overly concerned about November and December because once the rains start, you know, the rainy season, as I say, it does what it says on the label, it will rain. Uh, We reckon you need a minimum of 150 millimetres a month to maintain crop development, and it's very, very rare indeed that November, December, January fall short of that. Normally, they're well in excess of that. Uh, So I'm not overly concerned about November, December. The the, the, The only issue that I am concerned about when we went out into the field last month and we looked at the bud flowers, they every they seemed normal. You know, we 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 could see how big the branches were, we could see how many nodes there were, and we can from that build an expectation of the flowering and cherry set that we expect to see come December time. I think there is a risk that those bud flowers may have been damaged by the drought, and they don't produce flowers and cherries in a normal fashion.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, We will find out in December, you know, I may be completely wrong on that. They may, they they may, it may be perfectly normal and, 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 and totally adequate, but I think that's if, you know, in my view, that's the, that's the one risk that's still given the change in the weather, that's the one risk that is still unanswered and it won't be answered for at least another couple of months.
0: Yeah, that's w- one of the things I've been hearing is that um, that I think confirms what you're saying is that number one, when the plant is stressed with dryness and then it receives a nice rain afterwards, you, you tend to get an abundant abundant flowering. Um, but that if it's sufficiently stressed, then you might get less uh, setting, right? Less of those flowers will will, yep. will, will be confirmed uh, into beans. Um, and uh, and I think you've added another layer on top of that, which is that. Some of those uh, nodes, I guess, or, or pre-flowers, <laughs> um, may have already been damaged as well um, in the last few weeks prior to getting the rains. But yeah,
1: so certainly our you know our agronomists, who have a lot of experience in this, in their view, there is nothing obvious in the buds that suggests that they have been damaged. But right. you know, we, we've never had a situation where uh we've had such a late start to the rain followed by such a you know early end to the rain so uh you know we can look back over 20 years and it doesn't really tell us what will happen in this circumstance
0: yeah very good point uh and that's something someone else commented to me recently was we've never been in this situation before so uh we don't really know what's going to happen uh so it always stays interesting in coffee so i'd like to um I like to end on my coffee market crystal ball, where you 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 look into your crystal ball and you kind of give us your 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 predictions uh, on price, which we were going to totally hold you to. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, but uh, with with all the necessary caveats out of the way, what what do you think is going to happen with price over say the next six months? Just to well, throw the, a out the, there. The,
1: this is where I'm afraid I'm going to have to uh, disappoint you because our crystal <laughs> ball, our crystal ball is very much for clients only. But okay, we do have very. One. But uh, I don't think people who are paying for the crystal ball wouldn't be impressed if I started divulging <laughs> its contents to all and sundry. But okay, uh, fair enough. I, I think I think you'll you'll gather from and, and and quite honestly, at the moment, the crystal ball is pretty pretty fuzzy because so much depends on what happens over the next couple of months with the uh, flowering and cherry set of the of the twenty two twenty three Brazil crop. Okay, and and. and you know, we won't know until December.
0: Fair enough. Well, I I am disappointed, but uh, that's all (laughs) right. We'll, (laughs) we'll have to, we'll have to pony up with everybody else. Um, and, uh, one thing you had mentioned as well was uh columbia did you have anything to add on columbia I've, I've been hearing also of course that there's been a lot of rain there as well is that something we need to be uh watching out for and absolutely crop you know, the, the,
1: the Metaca crop cycle tends to start we, we you know weather impact starts at the beginning of august and in august and september we've had record rains mm-hmm. uh i think our average is 15 years, and and we've never seen it as wet in August and September. Uh, We've carried out a field survey, and it has damaged Metaca potential, and if it carries on being too wet, then that will will get worse. I actually think that, uh, you know, in Colombia, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of bags, whereas in Brazil, we talk about millions of bags, so it's not on the same scale. But obviously, given that the sea is a mild Arabica contract, uh, if you lose mild Arabica from Colombia, then it, it, it potentially has an impact.
0: Right. Well, now it's a mild plus semi-washed, right? Well, mild plus, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. if the, Do we count those as milds? I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, uh, well, Steve, this has been uh, a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for indulging all of my uh, my coffee uh, nerdiness and uh, was uh, great to get a chance to catch up with you again uh, virtually. Uh, totally appreciate it. It's a pleasure. All right. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Okay. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining our Coffee Trading Academy podcast. Check out the website and subscribe to receive our free and premium coffee market reports. That's www.coffeetradingacademy.com. Again, Coffee Trading Academy.com. Good luck with your trading, everyone. This is Ryan Delaney, your coffee price dress ninja here, signing off.